Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, February 14th, 2011, a.k.a. Valentine's Day. Yeah, I've got way too much stuff for a program, so I'm going to have to selectively figure out what I want to talk about today. Standard standard it's just become the norm can't keep up anymore so i have to strategically pick from the pile of garbage to uh, figure out what to talk about thank you for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris rosebro i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there and So we, yes, cover it and talk about it, play things in context. In fact, you can kind of think of this program as kind of a long-form discernment uh, radio program. And what I mean by long-form is is that uh, I generally try very hard not to just single out sound bites, uh, but uh, make a point of listening to people, long sections of what they're saying in context, in order so that you can hear what they're saying and so they can be biblically refuted correctly. As a result of it, it takes a little bit of time. From time to time, we, we do do some sound bites, uh, but I, I make sure to quote those people in context so that uh, we, you know the out-of-context claim doesn't get thrown in my face, although from time to time it still does. Uh, you know, but you know, those who are saying that I'm quoting people out of context, they actually need to take the time to like show me how I misunderstood it and how I distorted what they were saying by taking it out of context. It's one thing to make the claim. It's another thing to actually back it up. Yeah, just for those of you out there who think I take people out of context, I don't. I actually take great pains to put them in context so that you hear them correctly. All right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's Valentine's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Like I said, I've got too many stories for uh, really for a program, so there's no way we're going to get to all of this. But uh, what I thought I would do is... uh, Let's see here. I've got a you know here at the Indianapolis Star. You know I'm in uh, central Indiana here in the uh, middle of the Midwest, and we're finally thawing out from the big ice storm. It's been a couple of weeks, and the ice is still, still, still on my yard. But uh, the good news is, is that this morning I think I was finally able to break the hermetic seal on my driveway. And so the Al Gore Glacier, which it's be, which I've uh, become you know to lovingly refer to that big slab of ice out there in my yard that hermetically sealed my lawn, my driveway, the sidewalk, you know everything. Um, I yeah, three inches of thick, 
thick ice. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's known as the Al Gore Glacier. I'm, I'm glad to say that the Al Gore Glacier is, is finally receding. And today I was able to, you know, to make the, the last adjustments to finally free my driveway. And boy, am I happy about that. <laughs> oh, man. Ice, you know, ice is so much different than snow. Snow is pretty. Snow is something that I don't mind so much of. You know, snow is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It, it takes your breath away. It makes everything clean and crisp and, 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 and just and looks so, I mean, it looks like just God's, one of God's favorite design, you know, flares. You know what I'm saying? Ice, on the other hand, you know. Ice is uh, is evil. I think it's from the devil, and I think ice actually has a, a, a mind of its own, and its desire is to kill you. It wants to destroy you. It wants you to. It wants you to you know, lose your balance, slip and fall on your back, crack your head open, and bleed to death. That's what ice wants you to do. A snow is no, no snow is it doesn't want you to do that at all. But <sighs> anyway, <laughs> oh man, it was uh, talking with uh, my pastor the other day. And he was telling me about a, a gentleman that he knows who was who was a very healthy person. I mean, uh, a young guy in his thirties who you know, who jogs regularly. I mean, uh, these are the kind of people that you know. Obviously, there's something wrong with them. Otherwise, they, you know, they would be normal and they would be like me and be somewhat overweight. But ahem, anyway, he, he was out jogging, and uh, and he, what happened is is that he he actually slipped while he was uh, jogging on the ice. And uh, and because you know, the ice hermetically sealed everything in central Indiana, three inches of, of clear ice, he slipped, lost his balance, and slid down a hill into a retention pond. And, uh, and that's not a good thing. And uh, he was able to scratch and claw his way out of the retention pond and then scratch and claw his way back up the hill. And it took some time. He He nearly died of hypothermia. And uh, the moral of the story is, by the way, yeah, don't jog. Anyway, so, yeah, it could kill you. I mean, jogging is definitely a dangerous sport. So, anyway, you know, I I prefer more sedentary types of things. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, that's that's not really the moral of the story. But I just, you know, so I'm just, I'm happy that uh, we're having a thaw here in central Indiana. I'm hoping that this is the first twinges of the change in the season to spring. And uh, we'll see how this goes. But again, I'm still I'm adjusting to the fact that I live in a place where we have four seasons, four of them, and they they end rather abruptly. It's like you know, one day it's this season, and then boom, tomorrow it, the next day it's the next season. I, so I'm hoping that uh, with the temperatures here in Indiana uh, getting into the 50s, you know, it's it's like hot. You know, 50, when I lived in Southern California, it was 50 degrees. This, I mean, you break out a heavy jacket. You're, you know, 50 degrees here in central Indiana. As I'm thinking short sleeves. It's time to put the shorts on, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely warm. Balmy. It's a balmy 50 out there. Anyway, uh, so uh, with the um, – let's talk about for real what we're going to talk about. I just had to get all that stuff off my chest. You know, I just – you know, I, I feel a lot better now that, I, you know, I, I vocalized that. So – um, d- don't charge me though for the therapy. Uh, I, you know, the, the the way this works out is that I do the radio program and you support us financially, so you get to pay to, for me to talk to you in a therapeutic way. <laughs> all right. Um. He, yeah. Here in Indiana, we have. I'm sure this is happening all over the place. Yeah. Uh, the, you got these seeker-driven churches who are oh so trying to be relevant because you know, yesterday was Saint Valentine's Sunday, and you know what that means? It's time to have sex sermons. And uh, and so I've got a headline from the Indianapolis Star here. 
um, uh, uh, about a church in Brownsburg, Indiana, that's uh, that is promoting God as an expert on sex. Oh, good night. So let's we'll talk about that. Uh, let's see. But you know what? Now, now that the Super Bowl is over, um, you know, I know that football is really not the end thing. I mean, actually, we're gearing up for baseball. How many weeks before the uh, baseball teams show up to spring training? I, I think it's just a few more. I mean, ah, you just <laughs> good things are going to be happening anyway. Um, but uh, Valerie Tarico of the uh, Huffington Post. Is asking the question: Is praying before football games cheating? Yeah, well, I mean, we could just ask a question. I mean, if your if your team prays before any sporting event, is that a form of cheating? I mean, you know, because you know, if you get divine assistance, you know, that may actually, you know, that, I mean, that might be as bad as doping. I mean, you know, so so we're gonna take a look at that story. <laughs> oh man, um, and then uh, Jim Wallace from the. Sojourners, you know, now that the Republican uh, Republicans have uh, taken control of the, uh, you know, they're they're actually seated now in in Congress, they, they the House of Representatives in the United States, you know, and now the the question is, you know, we, we need to get the uh, the budget under control, you know, because in case you all haven't noticed, the American you know, the American uh, con- Congress spends money like you wouldn't believe that no human being can actually live like the way they spend. I mean. I mean, they've got so they're so far in the red. The debt is so huge. I mean, this just this you can't think about. You how do you possibly get out of this? But you know, now that the Republicans in Congress are talking about cutting uh, spending and and uh, and things like that, Jim Wallace. Oh, the 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 you know, being a red letter Christian. You know that he is. You know that that the red letter guys are the guys who reject actually the Pauline epistles. And and you know what's funny is is that when you talk to people who've actually been through those groups, who've spent time in those types of liberal churches, it's that it's not that they just ignore Paul. Uh, you find out that you know from guys who've left those kinds of churches, they actually mock and demean the Apostle Paul. And so, but I mean, Jim Wallace, being the red letter Christian that he is, is asking the question, what would Jesus cut? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, because we all know that Jesus, you know, is a good communist and a good socialist and that, and that, you know, really what he's in favor of is 100% taxation and then, uh, and then, you know, redistributing all the wealth to the, to the needy. (sighs) I may or may not get to that today. Uh, Let's see here. Um, Yeah, I want to get to this one, though, too. See, this is it. I got too many stories. So here's what I'm going to do. Thing is, I don't get to any story I, I list today that I don't get to. I'll talk about it tomorrow. Um, I, the Reverend James Martin, um, uh, who is um, a Catholic priest and author, has written a, another an article for the Huffington Post entitled "Spiritual Exploration as a Path to God." Spiritual ex- exploration as a path to God. I want to get to this one. I've got a, a another uh, Bill Johnson uh, the, for the Bill Johnson files. Bizarre things said by Bill Johnson. Um, I'm not going to do a sermon review on this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to cut this up into a couple of different Bill Johnson weird out segments. And the name of it is uh, Present Day Power. What we're going to do is in this sermon, I'll play segments of it, uh, not all in one day. I'm going to cut this into a couple of different segments here on the program. And and just just ask the question, what on earth is he talking about? I kid you not. In this sermon, he claims that Jesus was was born again. It, it just most outrageous things. But we're not going to get to the born again segment of this today. But we're going to do an installment of the Bill Johnson files today that I, I definitely want you to hear. And for sure, we'll not get to this. But I want to talk about this probably tomorrow. 
Uh, I, you know, it's so funny. I had no idea Ed Young was actually a televangelist on the Daystar Network. I did not know that. And uh, somebody uh, posted a link to a YouTube video of uh, of <laughs> Ed Young preaching on being fishers of men. And I, I, I listened to this and I thought, I feel like I'm listening to a, a pastor with ADD. And uh, I, I want to share that with you, but I definitely will not be able to get to that today. So we got lots of stuff that we, we've got to cover. And then in hour number two today, oh, have I got a whopper of a uh, sermon that we're going to be reviewing today. It's not really a sermon. It's a lecture presented by Patricia King on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit at the recently concluded um, uh, I Want More conference. Some, uh, uh, yeah, that, oh, man. Unbelievable. It, here's the deal. is is I've made the point that on uh, many of the videos that Patricia has been putting up lately, it's as if she's made a conscious effort to make her sound make herself sound more sane and uh, and, and and in a sense kind of put away and hide some of her crazier theology. This sermon, oh good night, you don't want to miss this. This is outrageous. This is really what Patricia King is like. And this is this is the heart and center of her theology, and I'm telling you, it is absolutely an abomination and blasphemous. And uh, you got to hear it to believe it. You're, I, I guarantee you that that after listening to this, while you're listening to this, you're going to have that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach like, oh my goodness, this is not God. This is something completely different. That's how bad this this is. But you need to hear it because you need to really hear what Patricia King is really all about. So... With that, uh, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper, and uh, so let's uh, do a little bit of news. From the Indianapolis Star, the headline reads, Brownburg, Brownsburg Church promotes God as an expert on sex. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, it must be Valentine's. You know, yeah, by the way, one of the things I've, I've pointed out many times here is that uh, it's funny that the seeker-driven guys, they, uh, they mock and make fun of liturgical churches that follow a lectionary. The reality is is that uh, the seeker-driven churches have a lectionary. They have seasons and church parts of the church year. And so in January, it's vision casting and weight loss. In February, because of Valentine's Day, it's sex and uh, and relationships. Uh, then you get into March, and generally in March, it, it, you're talking about careers and purpose. Um, and uh, by the time you finish all that up, then what happens is is that you get into you get into the summer season, and so then they do a you know the summer time is the preaching on the movies season, and then going back to school you talk about raising children and things like that, and uh, you know and then you've you know, you've got the uh, the financial freedom uh, segment of the year where they talk about getting out of credit card debt, and uh, and then they do again another sermon series on on preaching on. Uh, movies during the Christmas holiday season. So it's, I mean, it's all this, you know, that's the seeker driven church year. But now, you know, since the seeker driven church year and the seeker driven lectionary requires them to be relevant at all times, well, what could be more relevant than talking about sex during the Valentine season? <sighs> so here, anyway, here's the, um, yeah, here we go. I'm just going to read it. This is by written by Josh Duke of the Indianapolis Star. Posters, banners, and even drink coasters are popping up around Brownsburg, showing a picture of a man with eyes and mouth wide open and asking, what happens when God gets between the sheets? Oh, isn't that just provocative? Unbelievable. New Day Church is finding sex helps sell its message of faith. I think that's a sound statement. Yep. Let me read that again. Josh Duke of the Indianapolis Star writes, New Day Church is finding that sex helps sell 
its message of faith. By, by the way, it doesn't actually sell the message of faith in the Bible. It sells New Day Church's so-called faith, but it doesn't actually sell the biblical faith. just want to make that point. The edgy marketing campaign, which isn't really new or edgy at all. It's just the same old watered down the stuff that we've seen seeker-driven churches, you know, in their attempts to be provocative, you know, really for the better part of a decade now. Uh, The edgy marketing campaign promotes a sermon series starting today focusing on the link between sex and religion. During the next four weekends, the uh, year-old Hendricks County Congregation, which meets in an elementary school, will hear Pastor Dennis Roy discuss topic, uh, God's take on topics such as intimacy, pleasure, sexual preference, pornography, adultery, and even sexual healing. Uh, Though churches are always evolving to meet the needs of parishioners, New Day's efforts are part of a larger outreach trend nationwide, said Philip Goff, director of the Center of of the Study of Religion and American Culture at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. That's I-U-P-U-I for you outside of the, uh, out of uh, Indiana. A growing number of mostly startup churches are are trying increasingly creative approaches to appeal to people who have either stayed from church or have no interest in organized religion, uh, Goff said. Uh, One of the things many of these new churches are trying to do is imitate culture to bring in people instead of sitting back and critiquing it, he said. It is a trend that is going to be with us for a long time because preachers are realizing they may have to turn to non-traditional means to attract younger members. Yeah, notice, uh, so we got to basically use sleazy marketing campaigns in order to appeal to people. Yeah, last time I checked, trying to appeal to somebody's sinful nature is not the way that we lead them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins or proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This just leaves them in their sinful state. According to the Massachusetts-based Institute for Biocultural Study of Religion, U.S. churches need to do more to attract new followers. No, they need to preach the gospel and uh, tell people to repent and be forgiven in Christ because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith doesn't come by sexy, sleazy, uh, sermon, uh, edgy, sermon, uh, provocative uh, titles or anything of the sort. Anyway, it it, it cited a recent public religion research survey that found the number of non-religious Americans, those who report no formal religious affiliation, doubled from 1990 to 2008, reaching 17% of the population about 40 years ago, and that number was 5%. The Washington, D.C.-based Pew Research Center Center's Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life conducted a poll of 35,000 Americans in 2007 that found 16% described themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. The sex sermons aren't New Day's first provocative attempts to reach out. An earlier series called How to Live with Idiots and Morons focused on the Bible's advice on how to get along with others. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if I'm going to have to do a sermon review on that one. Uh, we knew uh, that when you bring up the conversation of sex, the knee-jerk reaction is shock and awkwardness. This is just out of the typical seeker-driven uh, press crit kit that comes with these prefab uh, sermon series, by the way. Uh, Pastor Roy said about his upcoming sermon series entitled Sex, Not in Church. Often there is a disconnect between people and church, he added. Sex is one of the issues that people are dealing with, and we believe God has the answers. Yeah, God has the answers, all right. You're a sinner when you're committing adultery, fornicating, or you know any of that stuff, and you need to repent and be forgiven for that nonsense and immorality. 
So there's the answer. <clears throat> anyway, uh, regarding his offbeat efforts to raise his church's profile, Roy said, quote, everything we do is focused on reaching out and not waiting for people to um, come to us. Yeah, the problem is you're not reaching them with the gospel. Other churches have gone other ways. Some have uh, services or events at non- non-traditional locations, such as tattoo parlors, music venues, or even bars. Uh, they may host heavy metal concerts, skateboard competitions, motorcycle shows, or even body-piercing events to spread their message. That's right. Yeah, there's nothing like a good body-piercing evangelism outreach uh, event. Uh, churches oh man, have begun to emulate popular aspects of society, Goff said, as a way to attract people to people whom they may have eventually want to convert. Uh, Brownsburg uh, resident Bill Payne, a parishioner at New Day, said he and other members support the efforts to draw people in, although he hopes they don't go too far to stay relevant and lose sight of the ultimate goal, which is spreading the word. I guarantee they will, uh, Bill, if they haven't already. Quote, it has become more necessary to show non-believers that we are just regular people with the same problems they have, Payne said. We aren't here to judge you or to look down on you, but to share the love of Christ. Jesus said to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Are you uh, loving people with the love of Christ with that message? Anyway, non-traditional Christian churches are not are, are not unheard of in central Indiana. The year uh, the year old drowning fish ministries tucked into space behind a tattoo shop in Avon, also in Hendricks County, has built a reputation by drawing non-traditional Sunday night crowd with a worship service more akin to a rock concert. Yeah, and the drowning fish guy, uh, he's really more emergent than he is anything. Anyway, we have everybody from professionals in suits to the extremely pierced in tattoos to goths, hippies, and ex-cons, said drowning fish pastor Scott Miller. The problems are the same for our congregation as for other churches. The packaging is just a little different. Oh, yeah, yeah, see, just a smidge different. Yeah, because churches have never done any of this stuff until very recently. It's just a smidge different, off by just a couple of degrees, I'm sure. Miller thinks most of the non-traditional churches arise from those that uh, within that fringe culture who feel left out. Miller encourages parishioners to hope, host small group sessions in places that would be non-threatening to non-believers, such as bars, coffee shops, and tattoo parlors. Drowning Fish's staff even promote the church with business cards featuring fake blood smears that read, Hate Religion. Yeah, question mark. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, you get the point, and uh, I'm sure in whatever neck of the woods you're living in, uh, you're having seeker-driven churches being provocative this time of the year because, I mean, after all, you got to stay relevant around Valentine's Day, and and the only thing that comes to people's minds nowadays when Valentine's Day rolls around is, well, you know, sex. Anyway, all right, moving along. Is praying before football games cheating? At least that's the headline of the next story from the Huffington Post. I mean, yeah, this will be the way that they can finally get rid of those pre-football game prayers. Just to deter- just determine that it's a form of cheating. You know, there's some there's some athletes that cheat by doping and taking steroids, and while other teams, well, they're cheating by getting, uh, you know, the Almighty to to help push them over the top. Yeah, apparently. That's the question at hand. Uh, let me read a little bit of this. This is uh, written by um, <clears throat> Valerie Tarico, who is the author of Trusting Doubt. <laughs> oh, man. Seriously? Trusting Doubt and the founder of WisdomCommons.org. I'll have to check that out. <clears throat> How many times have you seen football players on the screen or just off the field huddling for prayers before a game? You know what they're asking for, right? 
They're asking God to tweak the rules of biology and physics on their behalf, to make those fast twitch muscles twitch a little faster, to jack up a few hormones at the neurological synapses that govern visual acuity and reaction time, to swift uh, to shift the wind resistance on one side of the ball or the al- or to alter the relationship between spin and trajectory. <clears throat> In other words, what they're trying to do is get a 12th man out there on the field on their side, an invisible guy with superpowers who can play any position like Mr. Incredible, only better because he can go inside the other players and no one can even see him doing this magic. Is that cheating? (laughs) Oh, man. Why? Why do I just... I feel like this is... Yeah, I could see somebody at this point trying to, you know, uh, file a lawsuit against a particular team or whatever to get some kind of a precedent in in court, basically saying that praying is a form of cheating. My, oh man, my friend uh, Mary, a devoted soccer player with an interest in ethics and law, well, she would say no. Praying before games isn't against the rules. And Mary says you play to the rules, within the rules. It's a team's job to seek at every advantage. Uh, during the World Cup quarterfinal between Ghana and Uruguay, Luis Suarez deliberately uh, stuck his head, his hand up to block a goal, which cost Ghana a place in the semifinals and brought Suarez a red card. Even then, Mary said Suarez wasn't cheating. That's how the game is played. He made a choice and took his penalty, and that was, and, and that was his job. Seek every advantage, including adding invisible players like God. You see, I can't. <laughs> you know, liberals drive me nuts. <laughs> this is the way they argue, the way, the way, the things they bring up. Oh my goodness! Any, I gotta pause here for a second, and we gotta pay some bills. I, I'm gonna go floss my brain out. I just. The, Praying is not cheating. That's just, you know, I can just see that this is going to be the way in which they're going to get rid of all that public praying going on. And and you could just see it in the future. There will be guys who will be suspended for dropping to a knee or sticking their finger in the air after scoring a goal or a a touchdown or, you know, hitting a home run. Why? Because they're acknowledging that. The, 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 the Almighty is cheating for them on their behalf. Yeah, so you, know, you can't have God be part of any game because it could give your team an advantage that uh, I just can't make this stuff up anymore. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate christian radio we'll be taking your false doctrine now
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! I'm supposed to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer! Shut up! Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was... Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way.
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, uh, long-time exposure to liberal thinking will uh, turn your brain into mush and probably rob you of your faith and your salvation. Just saying. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. If you don't already do that, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith, and that's done on a monthly basis. It automatically comes out of your account every every month. And $6.95 is not a lot of money, at least to you, but it is to us. And the reason why is because uh, as our program uh, audience continues to grow, as uh, Pirate Christian Radio itself continues to grow in popularity, uh, our, our broadcasting fees, our royalty fees, uh, our server fees, all of that stuff continues to go up. And uh, so, you know, we, we, we heavily depend upon our listeners to help pay our bills. But uh, by spreading out our fee, you know, spreading out uh, you know, the support for Pirate Christian Radio over a large number of people paying a small amount of money, we found that that helps level out our giving in a way that makes it possible for us to to not have huge swings up and down month after month, you know, which then makes it so that uh, we can better budget our growth and, uh, and you know, and take care of the business that we need to do here by broadcasting what we do on a daily basis. So if you don't, again, if you don't partner with us financially, please, please do so. All right, moving along. Um, yeah, this next section. It's let's uh, let's switch on over to the Bill Johnson files. Which uh, here here's our Bill Johnson music. Yeah. On a side note. Um, I've noticed that the first season of the uh, of the X Files is available as instant watch on uh, Netflix. Yeah, just you know, if you want to have a flashback to the. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know what brought that to my mind. I'm such a nerd. Anyway, uh, the reason why we play this music is because uh, out of any so-called Bible teacher that I've ever heard, Bill uh, uh, Bill Johnson, he is the farthest out there. Um, in fact, you know, the X-Files uh, subhead is the truth is out there somewhere. Yeah, it, see, if you attend Bill Johnson's church, Bethel, uh, uh, 
The truth is outside of the church somewhere. It's not inside of the church. The truth is out there, you know, probably at a confessional liturgical uh, Lutheran church, but not at his church. It's out there somewhere, but not in here. Yeah, at least at Bethel Church. Let me (laughs) kill the music. All right, uh, here is, um, I'm going to begin, you know, kind of at the beginning of this uh, sermon. It's called Present Day Power. I'm going to play like, you know, the first, uh, you know, a few minutes of this. And see if you can get a radar fix on what on earth he's talking about, because every time this guy opens his mouth, I just I hear stuff that, you know, doesn't even remotely sound lucid, let alone biblical. But, yeah, here we go. Take your Bibles open to the Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter, and uh, we're going to start there today. I've got a number of verses. I think we've, we've yeah, made Luke nine. two or three. We'll see how this works. But Luke chapter 9, just start there. You know, I love when the Lord, you know, He uses us as He does, where He'll have us pray for somebody and we see God touch them and have us do something intentional where we actually get to, you know, deliver the goods, so to speak. But I, I think my favorite is just watching stuff happen that just shocks everybody. Like, we weren't used in it. Oh, we were just an observer, and God's showing up and doing what only he can do. And it is just so fascinating to see. Um, I mean, I you know, I love the other part, but it's so encouraging to me just to see, just because he's here, stuff happens. I remember one Sunday morning, we had, over in this yeah. section, we had two people. They didn't know each other. Two people, unrelated. Why did he have us open to Luke 9 again? I, and what is he talking about? Both healed of broken necks during the worship. Now they weren't they weren't paralyzed neck down or something. Just they had lingering problems because of broken necks in the same meeting. Unusual. They both came to me maybe ten minutes apart at the back door. Just saying, man, just during the worship, I just I just got healed and everything that was out of order. Just the Lord just restored me. You know what? I just I just love this. Uh, the fact that we get to enjoy the presence of God. We just, oh, my, just put a big old straw in the glass and inhale, you know. It's just it's way too much. But all right, Luke chapter 9, um, yeah, finally. verse 1. He called his 12 disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Verse 1 again. He called his 12 disciples together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I want to talk to you a, a bit today about the... Whoa, 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 slow down there. Um, let, <clears throat> you have your Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 9. Let me begin at verse 1 and kind of point a few things out here. See, Listen to the emphasis in my uh, speaking. Are you ready? And he, that's Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take, no mo- take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Notice he left that out. Um, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart, and uh, wherever they do not receive you when you leave that town. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them, and they 
departed and went through all the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Uh, Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. That's Jesus. Now, on their return, the apostles, the apostles, on their return, their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Uh, When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Yeah, so we're not really getting a, a real biblical reading here or a gospel reading. Um, it, it's it's as if um, all that other stuff that's part of the narrative story is really not important to uh, uh, you know, Pastor Johnson. Anyway, um, I just want to point that out. So I don't think that this text is going to say what he thinks it's it's saying because I don't even think he knows how to handle God's word. But let's continue. Subject of power and authority and. Uh... It's, here's what's fascinating to me. The disciples have this encounter with Jesus, and he gives them two realms. Now, I, I generally... Def- he gives them what? Two realms? That's not... It just says he gave them power and authority to do the things that he does. He being God, he has the authority over all things, and so he... Ba- Listen, it, it, this is real simple, Okay. Those of you who are employees, you ever worked for somebody? Okay, let's say you work for a corporation, okay? And in, in that corporation makes you a manager. And as part of being a manager, they give you an expense account. And they say, dear manager, you know, whoever you are, you have authority given to you by the, the high up mucky mucks to use this expense account as you see fit to meet the needs of the employees under your management. Uh, and uh, with this caveat, you cannot spend, you cannot purchase anything uh, or you spend money in excess of thousand of $1,000. Anything that costs more than $1,000, you must get approval before you actually spend that money. Okay, so what happens is, is that you now have an expense account. You have the ability, you have the power and authority to purchase things on behalf of your employees, and that authority to spend the corporate's, uh, uh, the corporation's money has been given to you by the high ups and the mucky mucks. Okay, you didn't before they gave that to you. You couldn't spend on their account. You would be, you would be thrown in jail. You'd be, they would. They would uh, have charges, you know, brought against you for criminal activity, for theft and larceny, or whatever of the sort. Right? Same things going on here. Jesus is God in human flesh. He has all authority. I mean, given to him because, uh, on account of the fact that he's God, right? And so he, as God, gives authority to the disciples to do particular things to to preach and also to heal and other things like that. They've been given, if you would, an expense account, you know, and you know, and they can draw on that account for the for kingdom business. That's kind of a, a good way of looking at it. But let's continue. Find the two realms this way: authority would, or for a placement. Authority would be the badge; the power would be the gun. You know, the, uh, generally you operate. What? Out of out of the badge, but when somebody is not respectful of the badge, then then you have something to back it up, is the point I'm trying to make. 
of course, if you're in England, you have... How a, did he get any of that out of uh, Luke 9, 1? A baton. Yeah, a baton. <laughs> a baton. Yeah, a baton. Yeah. Sorry, I almost fell into that hole. I just would never recover. <laughs> you, you were thinking, yeah, yeah, you were. I could, t- I could feel it. I could feel the vibe here. Um, the realms of power and authority are given to the church, given to us to do what Jesus did to accomplish what he was accomplishing. He said, as the Father sent me, I send you. So the way I describe these two realms is the realm of power is actually the presence of God. And there's a sense, for example, in a meeting, you will sense at times the Holy Spirit moving in a particular way. And I was like in moving in power to catching a wave. It'd be like... This passage doesn't say anything about catching a wave or or anything of the sort. Where are you getting this? <laughs> this is just crazy. Like a surfer seeing that a wave is coming and paddling like crazy to catch it, and then and then riding that. I've I've been in meetings where uh, my favorite example, although there are many, my favorite example is the Sunday night where I sense the healing presence of Jesus coming literally through the back right area back here. And I stopped and I just said, I said, the healing presence of Jesus just came into the room. And it's fascinating that, you can, that over time we can actually learn the presence of the Lord and what he has come to do. Because he, he doesn't always come to do this. What does this have to do with what was recorded for us by the eyewitness apostles to the life, teaching, death, resurrection of Jesus? What are you, where is any of this taught by them? The same things. It's, it's not like a, a broken record. He has so many things that he wants to do in us. And in Luke 5, it says the power of the Lord is present to heal, which tells me that that presence can also come to prophesy or to encourage or to restore, whatever it might be. But in this particular service, I stopped and I said the healing presence of Jesus. You notice how you know he's doing the heresy two-step here. He started on a passage. He stepped back away from it. Now he's shuffled to the left or to the right. We're off into the Twilight Zone or the X-Files realm. This is ridiculous. Jesus just came into the room and sitting right back over here was a man with prostate cancer. And the, and the pain left his body and went to the doctor that week and the cancer was completely gone. A woman was sitting right up here. Very interesting to note now as I'm thinking about it in hindsight. It was this side of the room. And had, had I been thinking more clearly out of a little deeper experience, I would have maybe had everybody on this side of the room come to this side. <laughs> the things you wish you knew, you know. But literally a woman sitting right down here with a tumor in her breast, her friend reached over, touched her shoulder, and the thing just disappeared. Because what did we do? Well, we just... Boy, he's a great storyteller, isn't he? I'd like to get medical proof for any of this. Just, we just stopped what we were doing paddle like crazy to catch the wave. He showed up and just did what he does. But there's another realm. You know, when you're down at Walmart and the person in front of you has a cast on their leg, eh, probably not going to get a big old wave of power going through Walmart. You're going to have to operate out of something different. It's going to have to be out of the badge. It's going to have to be out of who he says. So if you're at Walmart, you, you don't you don't operate out of the uh, um, the badge. You operate out of the gun. or the. You know. Which one is which again, and how did you figure that out from the text? What is this guy saying? As you are, because of what he has done, what he has called you to be. And there's a difference between catching a wave and starting a wave. Authorities... <laughs> so do, woo! Yeah, that was so deep it was unfathomable. <laughs> this is ridiculous.
is where you start the wave. And sometimes there's confusion in this realm because we, one of our, our, our... Yeah, where does the Bible clearly teach these realms and how to operate in them and all this kind of stuff? And how do we know when to pull out the badge and when do we know when to use the gun? I mean, where does the Bible give us the instructions on how to do this? Or did you just make this up yourself? Our main decrees that we've made for the last 15 years is Jesus said, I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. It sounds like a contradiction to be looking for what the father's doing, ride the wave, and then in another context to start the wave. But here's the deal that uh, it's not the subject today, but I'll, I'll just throw it out. Start the wave or ride the wave. Yeah, I'm all confused. Where are these waves mentioned in the Bible again? And, and we'll move on. Sometimes you can only discover what the Father is doing by using your authority to get you there. <laughs> I mean, the, these sentences, they have nouns, they have verbs, they have direct objects and things. But the, these sentences make no sense. I mean, it's like, it's like my quintessential sentence example. Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. And you... He's sitting there going, hey, what? Yeah, well, right. It's just, it sounds like it makes sense. Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. But when you start to pull it apart, you realize that that sentence doesn't mean nothing. He's doing the same thing. These are all just a string of blue sleeps faster than Tuesday type sentences. Sometimes you can only discover what the Father's doing. See, the, the Father didn't even, even to Jesus, his own son, did not always communicate directly to him. We know that Jesus only did what he saw his father do, right? We have, John chapter 5. He only did what he saw his father do. What about the woman that touched his garment and was healed? What about the Syrophoenician woman? The Lord wants to heal everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike, but he had an assignment to touch the Jew first, and after his death it would be spread to the, to the Gentiles. So the Syrophoenician woman comes to him and says, Please deliver my daughter. And he, in so many words he said, This isn't the time. You just got to wait. She moved in a realm of faith. It drew him out of, literally, out of the assignment to minister to the Jew first. And he went and he brought her. How did Jesus know? Well, he saw what the Father was doing by what was on her. The text doesn't say that. I mean, seriously, I mean, you have to be using your cosmic peepers in order to you know, divine the text under the text using the green, you know, remember the Urim Thummim technique, stick the Bible, you know, rip a page out of the Bible, stick it in a hat and wait for the green translucent spiritual letters to appear so that your third eye can see them. I think that's how he's reading the Bible. Are you following this? She couldn't get that faith anywhere but from the Father because faith comes as a gift. So sometimes we recognize what the Father's doing only because we're pursuing out of the authority of his word. He says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, heal the sick, deliver people from demons. All this, this is your assignment. Yeah, remember when I read that, he said to them, the apostles, they, you know, you know. So we listen to the authority of the word. We start knocking on doors and looking for opportunities to serve. And it's in that context we find oftentimes what the Father's doing. Does that make any sense? All right. All right. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. This is utter spiritual gibberish. That's not the subject, though, so just put it aside. We'll move on. So here's Jesus. He looks to his disciples, ministers to the disciples, and he gives them power and authority to do what he does. <clears throat> we need wisdom, a real clarity of heart and mind pertaining to what I refer to. Anyway, I don't have better language yet. 
the difference between an individual and hey, did you catch that? I don't have better language yet. Yeah, because he's completely freewheeling. He's off-roading here spiritually. He's not teaching you anything that the Bible teaches. And the reason why he doesn't have language yet, that was those were his words, is because this isn't taught in the Bible. This is his own theology. He is rolling and smoking his own theology. This is I mean, seriously, this is the spiritual equivalent of uh, of marijuana. I mean, he's stuck it in the little zigzag, he's rolled it up and he's lit it and he's and he's t- you know, hitting on it. This is not biblical theology. This is not Christian doctrine. And the reason he doesn't have language yet is because he's just making this stuff up as, as he goes along. Anointing. An anointing is that sense of the presence of the Spirit of God upon a person that enables them to do what Jesus did. So we need. And where does the Bible give us that definition, sir? Clarity in our understanding on the difference between a personal anointing and a corporate anointing. A corporate anointing is just like uh, it's just that. And where does the Bible make the difference between a spiritual, uh, an individual anointing, or a corporate anointing? Where where is this theology laid out in clear and unmistakable language so that we can all know it? Why aren't why isn't your Bible open in such a way that you're actually saying, "And thus saith the Lord," or "Here's what God said in this passage"? This isn't biblical teaching. The whole uh, issue of uh, exponential increase. When you bring, you know, it's like you could have a a string that breaks at two pounds pressure. Well, you take three of those strings and wrap them together. It's not six pounds pressure. It's multiplied because there's God has written it into law, the effect of unity. And so this exponential increase comes when we gather when comes when we gather together. Now, we're to have a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord. It's just one-on-one. We also believe in small gatherings, two and three people gathering together over a meal or perhaps in a cell group or whatever, but also the corporate gathering. Each, each one of those things has purpose and effect. But what you can get in this environment, in the corporate gathering, there is a potential increase of anointing that is extraordinary, but it's only there by potential. Just because you have a thousand people come into a room that all love Jesus doesn't mean there's going to be a corporate anointing. There has to actually. (sighs) How did you figure any of this out? Seriously. I mean, you know. It'd be agreement of heart for purpose. That's where the corporate anointing comes. Why am I mentioning that? The disciples were actually brought into Jesus's own particular anointing. Now, just to put this in context so you can see where we're going later jesus would have to give them authority and they'd have to get power again after he died so what were they experiencing while they walked the earth with jesus for three and a half years he brought them into his own uh his own personal breakthrough in luke 3 jesus had a personal spiritual breakthrough really yeah, what verse says that? I, no, I'm serious. You show me a single passage that says that Jesus had a personal spiritual breakthrough. Uh, he's God in human flesh. Good night. This is bad Christology. Really, really bad. Oh, man. Covers this element. It says, when he's brought out of the water, the heavens opened, the Father spoke, the Holy Spirit came upon him as a dove. And remained on him. He was literally clothed with the Spirit of God. Jesus received power and authority in that moment. So when he gets. 
And the text that says that is what again? His 12 disciples together, what does he do? He gives them power and authority out of his own experience. The point is, he provided, I, I don't have a better way to say and it this yet. is just adventures and eisegesis. Insert crazy theory here. Yeah, that's how... The, it's like the Bible has a bunch of fill in the blanks. It's like a Mad Libs. You remember Mad Libs? You know, enter, you, you know, you basically, you know, somebody, you're at a party and somebody says, okay, give me a noun, give me a verb, give me a personal pronoun, give me a, you know, and, and then, you know, what happens is, is then, then they read to you all the crazy words that you've inserted. This is the, what he's doing with the Bible. This is all Mad Libs stuff. It's like the Bible has a bunch of fill in the blank blanks and he's inserted his own stuff into it. And now what we're hearing is the Mad Libs version of the Bible almost like an umbrella of his anointing. They could function in his gifting as long as there was a relationship. But there would come a day where they'd have to have their own experience. It couldn't function out of what Jesus experienced for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're all going, yeah. I was sitting there scratching my head going, what? Serious? This isn't biblical teaching at all. This is consistent in Scripture. It may sound strange to you, but it's consistent in Scripture. For example... It may sound strange. Uh, Yeah, that's kind of an understatement, uh, Bill. Yeah, the reason it sounds strange to people is because you can't read the Bible. You cannot read it honestly. Okay? You You know, the way it was intended to be read... You can't let, for instance, you couldn't go through the four Gospels and then at the end of it go, oh, yeah, I've come to the same conclusions that Bill Johnson came to because the text says X, Y, and Z. Now, you can't. Nobody on a fair reading of the Scripture can come to any of these conclusions. This guy is a complete charlatan, and he's a huckster. He's just making stuff up, and he's he's very good at selling his blue sleeps faster than Tuesday sentences, but none of it makes a, a hoot of sense. We're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Ay, ay, ay. We'll be right back. Patricia King sermon review coming up on the other side of the break. You don't want to miss it. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. You want to see what Patricia King's really like? Yeah, she tries to do a good job of looking normal and mainstream uh, at times. You're thinking, really? Yeah, believe me when I tell you, the videos she's been putting up lately are tame compared to what she's really like. Now you get to hear it. and Well, you don't get to see it, but you get to hear it. You know, Yeah, no hiding it now. <laughs> Let's uh, cue up the sermon review music and dive right in. You'll see what I'm talking about. The good, the bad, and the uh, <clears throat> ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity serving, uh, serving, serving, sermon reviewing service. Yeah, tripping over myself there. Today is, it's, uh, <clears throat> well, it's not really a sermon, but it is something like a biblical, no, it's not even a biblical teaching. Well, it's a teaching delivered by uh, Patricia King at the I Need More conference that was uh, broadcast on God TV. <laughs> oh, man. I am not kidding. You need to put on um, elbow pads, a helmet. You might want to wear a mouth guard so that you don't grind your teeth. Um, I'm thinking protective eyewear. Uh, Oh, man. Uh, Knee pads. uh, Let's see. Hip pads. You know, in fact, you might want to just borrow, like, your neighbor kid's uh, football uniform. You know, the the guy who plays on the high school football team. You might want to just put that whole thing on before you listen to the sermon. (laughs) Because at the end, oh, oh, Nelly. (laughs) And in the middle, and yeah, it's just, wow. (laughs) Oh, this is... Uh, this isn't biblical teaching, but I want you to hear this. I normally we you know we we you know we play the fractured fairy tale stuff when we do Patricia King. Today, well, it's um, it's a full, well, this is the closest thing to a sermon we've got uh, from her lately. Let me kill the music. So, without any further ado, this is from the I Need More conference, which I think based on, I'm looking at the video here. I think the I Need More uh, conference was uh, at the Toronto Marriott Airport Church in Toronto, Canada. This is where I think that's where this was uh, shot for quote God TV. And uh, before, by the way, we're not going to just start with Patricia King. I want you to hear the guy introing her because this is going to give you a little bit of a of a feel for. Just theologically, where these folks are coming, you know, you know what you can get a, like a ping on the radar. You know, ping, there it is. Oh my goodness, ping! Ah, this is yeah, yeah. You could see where it's coming from. So, without any further ado, here's the um, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the name of the uh, lecture delivered by Patricia King, filled with the Holy Spirit from the I Need More conference. Uh, here we go. We're not going to delay any longer. 
Okay, so at the very beginning of this, we're, we're, we're open to what Holy Spirit wants to do and what Holy Spirit wants to say. So all of this is being, well, for lack, you know, I feel like the Holy Spirit's being framed. That's all I can say. You know, you know what I'm talking about. When somebody's framed, what happens is, is that one person commits the crime but makes it look like somebody else committed the crime. So I think Satan's the real perp here. Uh, but uh, the Holy Spirit is being blamed for what you're about to hear. I just want to let you know that. So here, yeah. Patricia, be amazingly blessed. I love it when people talk about food. (laughs) I think we'll talk about food this afternoon a bit more. Get us ready for dinner. Amen. All right. Now, um, I want to talk about how wonderful Jesus is and how wonderful it is to be with him. And, you know, so she she says she's going to talk about how wonderful Jesus is. Now, I don't know if Patricia King has been drinking, but she sounds and looks a little bit loopy to me. Just, um, you know, when I, what's funny is, is that when I was previewing this over the weekend, my wife took a look at it and she says, yeah, she looks like she's, she's not all there. And uh, that was my wife's observation. I came to the same observation conclusion myself too. So I, yeah, anyway, I just want to let you know, here we go. Um. Those of you that are watching on television right now and on webcasts and that, you just get ready to slurp real deep in Jesus. and Slurp? Yeah, so Jesus is a big slurpy. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to find that one in the Bible. Eat of the goodness of the Lord um, because I just believe that you are going to get blasted like you... Like you can't even imagine. I can hardly wait. I'm going to get blasted. Probably not. Blasted and blasted. Amen. And for all of us here. No, I refuse to say amen to that. This sounds blasphemous. Here, we're going to have a really good time in Jesus. You know why? Because he told us we could. He told us we could. And um, as we were beginning this session... Um, Darren was sharing about the buffet and about eating off the table at the at the buffet and just going and getting yourself full. And that is truly what we have been offered in Jesus. In fact, one of uh, the teachings Jesus gave in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst. Uh, <clears throat> she'll kind of finish the statements, but the statement that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah, um, it just it it doesn't say hunger and thirst for the big Jesus Slurpee. If you're hungry and you say, "I need to eat," "I need some food," "I need some food," he calls you blessed. If you're thirsty, you say, "I need some more drink," "I need some more drink," he says you're blessed. <clears throat> yeah, this is a, a dubious use of that passage for sure. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And- right, for righteousness, not just hungers and thirsts. <laughs> Otherwise, we're all blessed. Yeah, I get hungry at times. 
Righteousness is just the things that are right. It's the things that are right. Do you know that health and strength is righteous because it's right? Man, we are... Yeah, hang on a second here. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Uh, Let me read. Okay. Uh, And uh, let's see. Mercurius. Okay. Mercurioi. Yeah, got it. Okay. Um, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, they shall be filled. Now, uh, just so you know, the uh, Greek word there for uh, righteousness is dikaiosune. Okay? Uh, let me read some of the, you know, what, what, this, uh, what this particular word means. Some of the definitions from the uh, BDAG uh, lexicon, we read the quality, state, or practical the practice of judicial responsibility, focus on fairness, justice, equitableness. Okay, number two, quality or state of jur- juridical correctness with focus on redemptive action or righteousness. Okay, um, let's see here. Third, the quality or characteristic of upright behavior, uprightness, righteousness. Upright behavior would have to be that life that uh, really is in alignment with God's law, if you would, you know. Um, let's see here. And notice it's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's not just a hunger and thirst. So those those are the um, those are the three primary definitions of dikaya sune, uh, which is the uh, word there for righteousness. Uh, I don't. <laughs> Something tells me, you know, I could be wrong here, but I'm willing to uh, to wager that uh, Patricia King has never formally studied uh, the biblical languages. It, uh, um, you know, and if she has, um, my apologies to her, but uh, uh, she has shown that uh, apparently she hasn't kept that up in a way that makes it so that she is a faithful uh, teacher of God's word. Now, I want to read to you a section from what I consider to be a decent book. Now, I can't recommend it wholeheartedly uh, because there's sections of this book that you must read with discernment, but uh, for the most part, this is a really good uh, book. The name of it is Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth E. Bailey. And I think Kenneth uh, Bailey is now sainted. What I mean by that is, is that he's gone to be with the Lord. And in this book, Ken Bailey actually spends a little bit of time helping people to better understand the um, the Beatitudes, because this is a, a section of Scripture that, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, is rather uh, tortured and abused. So let me read to you just a little bit from Ken Bailey's book on Jesus Through Middle Eastern Artists that talks about the Beatitudes, Okay. And this is somebody who's studied, you know, he's a, he's a, he was a Lutheran, and uh, he's gone to be with the Lord, but he, he studied uh, uh, Christian theology in, some, in Semitic frameworks, in, uh, in Middle Eastern culture. And so he has a slightly different take on some of this stuff, and I think some of the insights that he brings in this book are very good. But we, here we read, In the Beatitudes, the reader is presented with brief statements phrased in simple words that carry profound meanings. 
The goal of this chapter is to uncover some of those meanings. Matthew's Gospel contains a collection of the sayings of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. A similar but shorter collection appears in the Gospel according to Luke, named the Sermon on the Plain. A careful comparison between the two collections is beyond the scope of this chapter. But in passing, we can note that the two groups of sayings exhibit one primary difference. Luke records four positive Beatitudes, blessed are those four, that are balanced with matching negatives, woe to those four. Anyway, the last four couplets, uh, five through eight, are the reverse of the first four, one through four. Step parallelism is being used to link them. That is, a beatitude on the poor is balanced with a beatitude on the rich, and so on. So Ken Bailey notes, he says, In the Hebrew, as in the Greek, there are two words that are translated into English as blessed. The two Greek words parallel and uh, the Hebrew words, and it is important to understand the difference between them. One of the Greek words is eulogeo, ha- has, uh, has the Hebrew word baraka behind it, and the Old Testament eulogeo does not appear in the Beatitudes. This word is used in prayer when the worship leader asks God for some blessing that the individual or community is eager to receive from God. Eulogeo is the right word for, O Lord, bless the sick, or O Lord, bless the children. The other word in Hebrew, asir, and makurios in Greek, are word clusters which with, uh, which with their cognates are described by Raymond Brown as not part of a wish and uh, and to not invoke a blessing, but rather they recognize an existing state of happiness or good fortune. Now, let me just help you out here. Bailey is correctly pointing out that the Greek word here for blessed is not the type of blessing that Rick Warren talked about uh, in the Daniel plan. Instead, the word, Greek word makurios, he rightly points out, isn't basically invoking a blessing. It's rather saying that the blessing already exists, okay? So when in uh, using the Greek word makurios here, the author of this text, in quoting Jesus, was basically making a statement that Jesus was saying that blessed already are the poor in spirit, okay? It's, it's recognizing a state of blessedness that already exists. Now, let me continue. That is, they affirm a quality of spirituality that is already present. In English, we communicate this sense of the word with a hyphen or an accent. When saying Mrs. So-and-so is a blessed person in our, in our church, no one is, it, one is not asking for something, but rather affirming a quality in Mrs. So-and-so that already exists. In the Beatitudes, the term for blessed is makurios, the second of these two words. The presence of makurios in the Beatitudes makes a great difference. The third Beatitude should not be understood to mean, if you are meek, you will inherit the earth as a group. The Beatitudes do not mean blessed are the people who do X because they will receive Y. The point is not exhortation for a certain type of behavior. Instead, they should be read with the sense that, quote, look at the authentic spirituality and joy of these people who have or will be given X. Put in concrete terms, we could say, blessed is the happy daughter of Mrs. Jones because she will inherit the Joneses' farm. The woman in question is already the happy daughter of Mrs. Jones. She is not working to earn the farm. Everyone knows that a key element in her happy and secure life is that 
she and the community around her know that the farm will one day be hers. The first statement affirms a happy state that already exists. The second statement affirms a future that allows her even now to live a happy life. Hauk writes, quote, The special feature of Mercurios in the New Testament is that it refers overwhelmingly to the distinctive religious joy which uh, accrues to man from his share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. With this definition clearly in mind, we turn to the Beatitudes themselves. The first Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean by the poor in spirit? Luke merely says, blessed are the poor. A debate over these two phrases has continued in Western Christianity for what, for years. One side of the debate insists that the authentic voice of Jesus is found in the statement in Luke, the poor are blessed by God. Matthew, we are told, spiritualized this simple and powerful statement. A second way to understand the difference between the two phrases is to see Jesus as part of a prophetic tradition, and that for him, like Isaiah, the poor are the humble and pious who seek God. Matthew's phrase serves to bring out the original meaning already present in Luke, Isaiah 66, verse 2, from which Jesus borrows his language, reads, quote, But this is the man to whom I will look, he that is poor and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Did you know that uh, the first beatitude, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's cross-reference, is Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. I don't think a lot of you knew that. Now, if the reader's already influenced by this text, and others like it from Isaiah and the Psalms, then he or she does not need the additional phrase, in spirit. If that background in Isaiah is not known, then the phrase, poor in spirit, is critical for comprehensions. On rare occasions, the word poor in Isaiah does refer to people who do not have enough to eat, but in the majority of cases, it describes the humble and the pious who know that they need God's grace and tremble at his word. Jesus goes on to affirm that these blessed ones make up the membership of the kingdom of heaven, which is already theirs. But what precisely is the kingdom of God? Well, there is no simple answer to this question. Everything Jesus said and did is in some way related to the kingdom of God. It has to do with the rule of God in the lives of individuals and societies, by the way, and that rule comes about through the forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Prayer includes the words, Thy kingdom come, which obviously looks to a future that is unfolding, yet the kingdom has already come in Jesus Christ, who said, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We live in the interim between the inauguration of the rule of the kingdom of God and the coming of Jesus Christ and its completion at the end of history. Our struggle for peace and justice is part of our discipleship as we work for and await the coming of that kingdom on earth as a gift of God. In this beatitude, Jesus declares that the poor in spirit already possess the kingdom. Many people at the time of Jesus used the phrase the kingdom of God to describe a Jewish state where God alone was king. In contrast, Jesus declared that the kingdom was already present in the poor in spirit, not among the zealots. The old Syriac translation of this text reads, Happy it is for the poor in spirit that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As mentioned in the second line, uh, as mentioned, the second line is not a reward for the first line. Rather, the poor in spirit already possess the kingdom. Second beatitude, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a clear case of a divine passive. God will comfort the blessed who mourn. Uh, The good news, Bible turns this passive into an active and translate, happy are those who mourn, God will comfort them. About what should we mourn? Why are those who mourn called blessed? There is a horrible side of the human spirit that enjoys watching others suffer. The film industry has discovered this darkness and makes billions of dollars every year exploiting it. This twisted fascination in the heart of humankind is a despicable form of evil. 
At the other extreme, uh, forces in society make billions of dollars cushioning the public and protecting them from any form of suffering or even unpleasantness. There is no need for self-discipline in eating, no need to exercise, no need to endure pain. Eat all you like, buy our pills, and you will lose weight without discomfort. This beatitude has nothing to do with either of these attitudes. If there is mourning, some form of suffering lies behind it. How are we to understand these things? Here we go. Christians are never urged to seek suffering. They are, however, encouraged to recognize that suffering is an extraordinary teacher. We know little about the great depths of the human spirit until we have endured suffering. Pain rearranges our priorities. To become a refugee is horrible, and the forces that drive people from their homes must be opposed. Yet anyone who is obliged to flee his or her home, as I was on three occasions in Lebanon, quickly learns that what really matters is life itself and that all possessions are, at the end of the day, worthless. Mourners endure suffering, and the blessed ones among them experience the comfort of God. Great natural disasters such as hurricanes or tidal waves strike our world. When there is warning, uh, when there is warning a few brave souls usually choose to remain in their homes. The vast majority of the inhabitants flee the coming devastation. After the storm abates, those who are able to do so return home at that time at that and at times there is a pattern that emerges between the lines of the news reports that are written for the world to read. Often there is a striking contrast between those who stay and those who leave. The hearts of the survivors are often full of gratitude that they are still alive. The returnees at times see only devastation and feel only anguish. The one who is lashed by the storm is often the one who is grateful. It does not follow that we seek to stand in the path of destructive storms in order to learn gratitude, but the blessed who suffer and mourn deep loss can be blessed by God in that suffering and mourning. Ecclesiastes 7, 2-4 reads, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go, down to, the ho- go to the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of countenance the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. For decades I have pondered these words, wondering what they meant. I still ponder them. Recently I attended the funeral of a dear friend and companion along the Pilgrim Way. A number of people who knew the departed said, uh, said the t- uh, uh, let's see, uh, departed saint told stories of how he had encouraged and influenced them. As they spoke, and as we remembered his life, the atmosphere among the mourners began to soar in a majestic way. There was an open mic where friends could give their unscheduled witness to remember, uh, to remembered courage, faith, loyalty, love, and vision. Yes, there were tears and some laughter, but all of us heard the great bells of the faith ringing in our minds and hearts in a strange and indescribable way. There, the heart was made glad in the house of mourning as the beatitude took on fresh meaning. The righteous also mourn when they see people treated unjustly. It is easy to develop armor to protect ourselves from feeling the pain of others. And as that happens, we cease to mourn for for or with them. The blessed continue to mourn in the face of injustice. I once read a book of, of recollections of Anne Frank compiled by her friends. One witness who was with her in the death camp noted, Her tears never ran dry. Her body gave out, but her spirit never surrendered to compassion and to compassion fatigue. To the end, she was able to mourn, and she was a blessed presence for all who knew her. This beatitude also calls on the faithful to mourn over evil in their own lives as they realize their inability to conquer it unaided. Failure to love God and our neighbors should produce grief. Let me read that sentence again. Your failure to love God and your neighbor should produce grief. The blessed are those who experience this mourning. 
What happens then to people who mourn because of their own pain and are at the same time insensitive to the pain of others? There is no hint that such people are among the blessed. Rather, those who are aware of their failures to meet God's royal law, to love God and neighbor, will experience the comfort of God. From the depths of their souls will come the quiet peace of God in the midst of their mourning. Such people are a blessed presence among God's people. Now, I'm going to fast forward. I'm going to skip the blessed are the meek, and I'm going to go right to the one where it says uh, that uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, and see what uh, he has to say about that. We'll just do a little comparison work between what he's saying and uh, what Patricia King says. So we continue. uh, The um, fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. As a good Middle Easterner, Jesus here makes astute use of metaphorical language. To talk about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is to use words rooted in physical needs to describe spiritual realities. The vast majority in the developed world have more than enough food and water to satisfy their bodies. Among the poor, hunger sadly remains, and food security is even uh, an even greater problem. But across the developed world, serious sustained thirst is almost non-existent. This has been true for so long that complacency has set in and both of these precious gifts of God are wasted. By contrast, many in Jesus' world would have personally known both unrelenting hunger as well as life-threatening thirst. Once in my life, I nearly died of thirst. While living in the south of Egypt, a group of friends and I traveled deep into the Sahara Desert by camel. As our trek began, the temperature soared to above 110 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade, and there was no shade. On our way, one goatskin water bag leaked all of its precious contents. With consumption high due to uh, to the heat, we ran out of water, and for a day and a half we pressed on while enduring intense thirst. The goal of the excursion was a famous well named Bin, uh, Bir Shatun, deep in the desert. Our guide promised us that it was never dry. Ah, but could we survive to reach its life-giving liquid silver? My mouth became completely dry, and eating was impossible because swallowing felt like the rubbing of two pieces of sandpaper together. My vision became blurred, and the struggle to keep moving became harder with each step. We knew that if the well was dry, our armed guards would probably have forcibly seized our three baggage camels and ridden them back to the valley, leaving the rest of us to die. As I staggered on, my mind turned to this verse, and I knew that I had never sought righteousness with the same single-minded passion that I now gave to the quest for water. Yes, we managed to stagger to the well, and it was full of the wine of God, as water is named by desert tribesmen in the Middle East. In the process, I learned something of the power of Jesus' language. In a world where water was scarce and travel arduous, his listeners would have known what it meant to hunger and thirst after water, food, and thus could understand what Jesus was saying about an all-consuming passion for righteousness. But Jesus does not say, blessed are those who live righteously and maintain a righteous lifestyle. Rather, he affirms, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The statement, 
presupposes that righteousness is something the faithful continually, continuously strive after. The blessed are not those who arrive, but those who continue at whatever cost in their pilgrimage toward the more perfect righteousness. The constant, relentless drive towards righteousness characterizes the blessed. Matthew thirteen forty four through 46 includes a pair of parables that illuminate this beatitude. The first one likens the kingdom of God to a man who finds a treasure in a field and sells everything and buys that field. The second parable compares that same kingdom to a merchant searching for a pearl of great price. Contrary to popular perceptions in this latter case, the kingdom is not compared to the pearl, but to the merchant who is searching for it. The beatitude we are now examining is like the second of these two parables. The believers who hunger and thirst after righteousness are called blessed in that striving. But what exactly is righteousness? The nature, uh, the great word, Sedaka Hebrew and diakasune Greek are both theologically freighted. Throughout the Bible, the theological dictionary of the New Testament article on this family of words extends four uh, extends for fifty one densely packed pages. The key uh, to it all is that sedaka does not refer to an absolute ideal or an ethical norm, but it is out and out a term denoting a relationship. Every relationship makes claims on conduct, the satisfaction of these claims which issue from the relationship and in which alone the relationship can persist is described by our term sadakh. With this fundamental concept in mind, it is clear that righteousness is like a diamond with many facets. We will briefly examine four of them. One, biblical liter- in, in biblical literature, righteousness often refers to mighty acts of God in history to save. Again, Von Rad is helpful where he writes... Quote, from the earliest times onward, Israel celebrated Yahweh as the one who bestowed on his people all the all-embracing gift of his righteousness. And this sadak bestowed on Israel is always a saving gift. One of the places where this is clearly set forth is in Micah chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, which read, O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I set you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. In this text, God reviews his past mighty acts in history to save Israel and calls on them to remember all that he has done for them, and declared purpose of, of this recollection is, quote, that you may know the sadachot, righteousness of the Lord. The RSV correctly here translates sadachot as saving acts, which is exactly what sadachot means in this text. But those great saving acts not only deliver Israel, but they also grant her a new status. Number two, righteousness has to do with being declared righteousness. As one theologian said, it, it, righteousness, does not mean the ethical quality of a person. It does not mean any quality at all, but a relationship. That is, dikaiasune is not something a person has as his own. Rather, it is something he has in the verdict of the forum to which he is accountable. He continues, Matthew 5, 6 obviously does not mean that those who, uh, those who, quote, ever striving endeavor to attain ethical perfection, but those who long to have God pronounce the verdict righteous as his decision over them in the judgment. This understanding of righteousness as affirmed to be righteous appears in selected lines from Isaiah chapter 54, verses 10 through 17, which, are, which in part read, 
but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. In righteousness you shall be established. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, says the Lord. Regarding the above text, Schrenk says, God's righteousness as his judicial reign means that in covenant faithfulness to his people, he vindicates and he saves them. If God then acts in righteousness to grant his people a new status, how must they respond? As already noted, every relationship has claims upon conduct. If God's righteousness is God's saving acts, what is the nature of the claims upon conduct that are required from God's people? Righteousness is also a human response to the verdict of innocent or righteous, which is received as a gift of God. The unspeakable, gracious gift of acceptance in the presence of God requires the faithful to respond. Remembering the overlap in meaning between justice and righteousness, it is clear that the righteous person is the one who acts justly. Furthermore, that justice slash righteousness is not simply giving every man his due, but includes showing mercy and compassion to the outcast, the oppressed, and the weak, the orphan, and the widow. Job is a classical example of a righteous man. When under attack, Job defends himself by saying, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was, uh, it, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. Here as elsewhere, righteousness and justice overlap and at times are synonyms. And the righteousness that Job claims for himself is compassionate acts for the weak and vulnerable, not objective application of law. Isaiah describes the suffering servant by saying, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 3. The nature of the justice that this unique servant of God will demonstrate is compassionate acts on behalf of the broken and the exhausted. Micah continues to clarify this definition of righteousness by recalling God's righteousness in deliverance of his people during the Exodus. How then should the people respond, the prophet asks, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Israel personified muses as to whether God wants burnt offerings, thousands of rams, tens of thousands of rivers of oil, or even offering of the firstborn. The implied answer is no. The prophet then addresses Israel and says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. Where did God demonstrate the pattern of response that he expects from Israel? Where did he show them what is good? The answer is obvious. Israel was given the expected pattern of response in the saving acts of God toward the nation, which had just been reviewed in the previous verses. God great, God's great mercy to them in the Exodus and its aftermath was the pattern of the kinds of compassionate acts that he expected from them toward others. A distillation of of these expectation then appears in the final lines of this passage, which read, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? How God treated them in their need is the model for how they are to treat others. Four, finally, righteousness is also connected to peace. This appears in Isaiah chapter 32, which reads in part, And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will live in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the ass range free. Where righteousness and peace are maintained, even the domestic animals are free. To summarize, blessed are those who strive for righteousness, 
with the same earnestness with which the hungry and the thirsty seek food and drink. God's righteousness is in his acts in history to save. That salvation grants to his people the gift of acceptance before him. They, in turn, tirelessly seek a lifestyle appropriate to the relationship granted to them as a gift. They will model their response after how God has dealt with them in his mighty acts on their behalf. That response will include justice and compassion for the weak. Now, that is a biblical, well-thought-out response to the question, what is meant in when Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they shall be satisfied. Patricia King shows that she knows nothing of God's word based on where she goes next. Just compare what you heard to what you were about to hear. Amen? Did you know that joy is righteous? Because it's right. In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. Peace is just right. It's righteous. Goodness is righteous. Purity is righteous. Power is righteous. And Jesus said that you are blessed if you hunger and thirst for all those things that are right. Power, health, wealth. This is the exact opposite. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus meant by hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What Patricia King is saying. That's the reason why I read that passage from the book Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Because what Patricia King is saying is 180 degrees the exact opposite of what is meant by that passage. You are blessed. Why? Because you'll be filled. If you can identify your hunger, then you can have your hunger filled. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for the things that are right, because you shall be filled. We oftentimes don't um, think of, you know, things like joy or love as, as righteousness. We think of, we so often think of righteousness as this code of rules that you have to follow to be good so that you don't get your name struck out of the book of life. We've got that kind of like that, that thing in our mind about what righteousness is. But righteousness is that right standing in the right things and the good things that God has given to us. Everything that's in Christ is righteous. And you have been made righteous in him. You have been offered all those good things. So if you're hungry and you're thirsty, if you ever identify hunger or thirst in you, you just can start saying, I'm blessed. Wow, I'm blessed. I'm so hungry. What a blessed person I am. I'm so thirsty. What a blessed person I am. I'm blessed. I get to ingest. I get to ingest. I get to eat. I get to drink of the goodness of God. That's what you do when you're hungry, right? When you're hungry, don't you eat? When you're thirsty, don't you drink? You ingest when you're hungry and thirsty. Jesus said, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And so he expects us to eat and drink of him. He also said, In John 7, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. 
In Ephesians, it says, don't be drunk on the world's wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Amen? So we have invitation to drink and to eat, but you just got to make sure you eat and drink of the right substance. Why? Because when you eat and drink of Jesus, and when you eat and drink of his goodness, when you eat and drink of that eternal wine of his... You know, the, my question would be for her is, uh, well, what are you getting when you're uh, taking uh, the Lord's Supper? I mean, that would be the obvious place to go with this, don't you think? But we're we're off on some bizarre little tangent. She's, in a sense, ripping verses out of context in order to weave together this theology where at the end of it, well, you get to be drunk in the Spirit because that's what it means to really drink of the Spirit is to drink to the point where you're inebriated. His presence, it fills you with strength, with goodness, with joy, with empowerment, with all those things. It's so good, and there's no sorrow in it. Isn't that amazing? Now, um, before I became a Christian, I was a heavy drinker. I was a very heavy drinker. I'm a heavier drinker now. I just changed the substance, you know. But I was a very heavy drinker as a non-Christian, and I used some drugs. And there's reasons why we do that. There's reasons why we go to the substances that are out there in the world um, that make us what we call feel good, right? Remember any of you that were out in the bars, you said, wow, I was really feeling good, you know? And what we meant was we overdrank and everything was numb and everything seemed happy. And so people overdrink natural substance like alcohol and that, and they will take chemicals into their body. They'll ingest chemicals or inject chemicals or breathe in chemicals in order to make themselves feel good. In order to make... Them now, I want to point something out here. The uh, hunger and thirsting after righteousness sake has nothing to do with going to a bar. It has nothing to do with physical eating. Jesus is using a metaphor that's something you can grasp onto. You know, what, what, what type of pursuit of righteousness that we're talking about here. Yet, 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 now we're into oh, people go to bars and they drink and and they feel good and and but we we have a better way to feel good. Oh, okay, let's find out what that means. Selves feel empowered in this hour. There's there's just such um, a crisis to do with people getting high on on drugs. It, it's just it's it's critical. And yet we have the real thing for the world out there. In fact, I've seen people get delivered from addictions by, by just changing their substance. Literal, literal God-given deliverances from the spirit of addiction to all kinds of stuff. But, you know, cocaine and crack and, and speed are, are drugs today that are being used en masse, especially amongst the young people and cocaine, um, even amongst the 40 and over gang. Um, it's, just, it's just like an epidemic proportion. Why would anyone want to snort cocaine? Or, or why would anyone want to ingest crack into their system or shoot up 
on any of these drugs. And mainly it's because they want to feel empowered. That's what cocaine does. It, it makes you feel like you can take on the world. Makes you feel like a, a superpower person with a clear mind. Feels really good at first. And people want to feel like they have power over their situation. So they're willing to compromise their health and, and, and their families and everything by taking a substance that will give them that for a moment. But at the end will destroy them. For a moment of that kind of empowerment, it means so much to have a moment of empowerment that they are... Okay, notice the theme, moment of empowerment. By the way, Matthew 5, uh, verse 3, or the the, the third be, uh, the fourth beatitude, has nothing to do with cocaine or drug use. It's how do we get here? I don't know. Oh, yeah, because she's she's building her own theology. It's it, This is her own thing. It, this is not biblical theology that you're hearing. Willing to actually destroy their life just to get that moment. Now that's defining a need on the inside. That's a life that has a need. A need that says, I need power. I feel powerless. I need to feel on top of the world. Well, if we can identify our need for that kind of power, all we have to do then is find the right substance because God... No, watch the, did you catch that? So the, the, the need for power... Oh, well, that's a good thing. You see, but see, the thing is, is that just people are looking for the wrong substance to help them fulfill their need for power. Is it really, is, the, is that what Jesus hung on the cross for so that he can fulfill your need for power? What, I mean, is that what the Holy Spirit does? Is in, It comes upon people to, in order to satisfy their need for feeling powerful? What text in the Bible says that? In fact, you can make a very clear case from the clear teachings of Scripture that it is the humble and the contrite, the broken and poor in spirit that are blessed, not those who seek a feeling of power. But let's continue. Made us, he created us so that we would be in that level of empowerment, that we would have power over all of our circumstances, that we would be the head and not the tail, that we would know the goodness of God in every situation, that we would be able to create environments of safety around us. He created us for that. He's on our side with all that. He wants us to actually feel that level of empowerment in him. We don't have to go to counterfeit... And, and what passage of Scripture says any of this? She's making all of these claims. God wants this. Do you? God wants you to have that. And, you know, I'm not... I, she doesn't have an open Bible. I mean, the God she's describing sounds more like, well, the self-deity written about in the Satanic Bible. I know you're thinking, wow, that's pretty powerful, Chris. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure about that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, spend a little time. If, next time you go to the, the the bookstore, you go to Borders or whatever, ask them to ask where the uh, Satanic Bible is. It's still a bestseller. Read some of it. The, the Satanic Bible, it's not about Satan. It's about self-fulfillment. It's about, do, about you doing what you want to do. That's really what that's about. So she's not describing repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and loving God and loving neighbor. She's talking about power, power to succeed, power to have health, power to have wealth, power to be the head and not the tail. This is satanic. 
This is not Christian. Substances to feel that empowerment. Another drug of choice right now is uh, heroin. It's, it's, it's growing rampant as well as all kinds of um, painkillers, prescription painkillers that have the same kind of effect. And what those drugs do is make you feel like you can bow out of life altogether. Life is too hard. It's too complicated. I'm just going to go off into la-la land and just forget that life even exists. Well, God wants us to be in that level of rest whenever we need it. He wants us to go into a euphoric rest in him whenever we desire because it's heaven's atmosphere. We don't Where in the Bible does it said that God desires us to go into a euphoric rest and to quote breathe the intoxicating atmosphere of heaven? She's just literally throwing these statements out without an open Bible. Not one passage of scripture says anything like this. You don't have to go to some toxic, addictive substance in order to experience that because those substances out there in the world are the counterfeit. And if it's the counterfeit, what is the real thing? What is the real meal deal? Oh, I get it. So, oh, I see, you know, drugs and alcohol, they're a, they're a, they're a counterfeit of the real thing. This is, oh, wow, quite a, this is quite a sharp mind we're dealing with here. Yeah, again, where in the Bible does it even say anything remotely like this? This is just her own reasoning. This is her own thoughts. This isn't what the Bible teaches. This isn't what God has revealed. This is flat-out idolatry. Because that is what God is offering his church. And it is offered to... Really, where in the Bible does it say that, Patricia? You 24-7. You don't have to drive your car out to find a drug dealer to get your substance that you need to get fixed. We have a friend who was a, was a, was a drug addict, and they told us how when they were addicted, they, they would... They would be so desperate in the middle of the night. They would just get up and they would drive down into the sleaziest part of town and find a dealer to give them their drugs. In the middle of the night, in a scary part of town, they didn't care. All they wanted was to get their substance and they got their substance to go back, inject. I mean, how foolish of them. I mean, didn't they know that the Holy Spirit will give it to them for free on the safety and comfort of their suburbanite home? it and had peace for another few hours that's horrible what a way to live and especially when we know the truth it says oh i'd like a little peace right now oh thank you jesus i'm that is just pure blasphemy to liken jesus to, to taking a bong hit or a toke Wow. Hungry for peace. I'm thirsty for peace. I'm blessed. Because you said I'd be filled. You said I could be filled. You said I could eat of your flesh and drink of your blood. Here I am. He's available 24-7. And you don't have to go down to a sleazy street corner to find him. He's with you all the time. And the church needs to actually learn how to drink and how to imbibe of the Lord. 
Why do people go to substances that make them high? Well, first of all, it relieves stress, doesn't it? Why does the church need to learn this? If the Bible doesn't clearly teach this, then the church doesn't need to learn this. What she's talking about is pure nonsense. This is blasphemy. This is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Because all of this, by the way, like I said at the beginning of the review, is being blamed on the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit apparently wants them to know all this stuff, yet it's never clearly taught in the Bible. So God the Holy Spirit really didn't want us to learn this. What this is, pure and utter satanic blasphemy. People take drugs and alcohol because it helps them release, re, re, relieve stress. Secondly, it makes them feel good. It empowers them. It numbs pain. It releases joy. They have good laughs. Offers peace, rest, and sleep. It's an anesthetic. It has that kind of, um, you know, it anesthetizes them when they're, when they're hurting bad. There is a way that seems right to a man. I mean, oh, man. There's a way that seems right to a man. You know, it's all about you taking the wrong drug, and what you should be taking is the inebriating Holy Spirit. I mean, the way she's talking, I mean, it sounds to me like we might have to get some kind of a substance, uh, you know, license in order to become a Christian. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, great. The Holy Spirit's now going to become a controlled substance. Um, But its end is destruction. They are hard on the body. You get hung over after you take those substances. There's physical and emotional addictive patterns that that affect your behavior and everything and you crash hard and you can ruin your family all those ugly things because the thief comes to steal to kill and to destroy but jesus came that we would have life and have it abundantly i remember the first time that i got and apparently the the abundant life equals getting drunk on jesus unbelievable this is ridiculous and the Holy Ghost. Whoa. And um, it was in a sovereign visitation, actually. The very first time I went up into the heavens, it, it came through a sovereign visitation. I was. You I, went where, Patricia? I mean, did you, uh, did you get there on a jet plane? Did you take a rocket ship up into the heaven? Seriously, you went to the heaven, the heavenly heavenlies, like the Apostle Paul did? Like, uh, you know, some of the prophets of old did? Really? How come your preaching sounds nothing like theirs? I can clearly, unequivocally state you have not been in the presence of God in heaven. Because if you had, Patricia, you would have been undone. And had you stood before the, the actual King of kings and Lord of lords in his glory, you'd be preaching the same message that the prophets did, that the apostles did, and that Jesus did. And you're not. That's how I know you're lying. I was in um, Florida in January of, of um, uh, 1994 in Florida. And we were in a meeting, and I was down under the power, and... I started laughing uncontrollably. And I remember thinking, why am I laughing? There's nothing funny. And when I thought about that, I laughed even harder. You know, 
And I thought, I don't get it. Why am I laughing? Why am I laughing? Uh, you know, and I was trying to stop it, but it was unstoppable. I couldn't stop laughing. And I, I felt a little bit insecure because we were in this big meeting and people were watching. And, you know, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm making a fool out of myself. I'm laughing in church, you know, and that was before things broke out here. And, and, and um, so I didn't have a grid for it. And um, so at that time, um, the Lord sovereignly took me into heaven. And you know what I heard in heaven? I heard laughter in heaven as though there was a big drunken party going on. It was just like the sound of a big party. How come none of the other human beings who've actually been in the presence of God, who've been to the third heaven, ever talked about the big drunken party? where someone's told a joke and everyone laughs and everyone's loose and laughing. By the way, if you would like a long protracted example of what it, you know, you know, somebody who'd been to the third heaven, the Apostle John, read the book of Revelation. See, tell me where the big drunken party is talked about in the book of Revelation. And everyone was laughing and it just was like that party laughter and, and I got offended I remember thinking in my mind when I saw what heaven was up to, I said, is that all you guys do up here is party? Do you not understand that we on planet earth are going through a lot of turmoil and struggles? There is a lot of stuff that we have to go through down there. And then they laughed again. They just laughed. And I realized at that time, that heaven's atmosphere was void of anything that would disturb your peace or take your peace. The atmosphere of heaven is full of joy, is full of peace, is full of love, and it's all mixed together. It's hard to define it even. But yeah, cause, you know, but she's an expert because she's been there. She could probably take you on a tour, you know. Yeah, I'm surprised she doesn't offer, you know, Holy Spirit tour guide, you know, guidance through these different places. Kind of Inception style, you know, get a bunch of people drunk on the glory and then whisk them off into heaven and, you know, Inception style, take them on a tour of the place so they can, you know, drink heavily at the different parties, you know, going on there, you know, where all the angels are drunk and all the saints are just completely hammered. Yeah. It's complete ecstasy all the time. That is the atmosphere of heaven. In my mind, there was turmoil, but in my spirit, I was at peace. In fact, I heard heaven laugh like in crescendos, and then it would just kind of come to peace, and then they would laugh again, and it was like waves of laughter. And you know what happened? Every time that heaven laughed, I laughed uncontrollably. Every time heaven stopped, I stopped. When heaven laughed again, I would laugh. When heaven stopped, I would stop. And the Lord showed me that we are divinely connected to the heavenly kingdom in our spirits. Now, I want to point something out here. Uh, I don't know how many minutes we're into the sermon because, you know, the way I'm playing it from a video. And so it's kind of hard to work that all out. But so far, we've heard uh, two, two verses out of context, two verses, but... She sure is spending a lot of time on her so-called trip to heaven, and she's preaching about that, and she's exegeting that event. 
to give us the message of that event, but not the, the, not the message of Scripture at all. In fact, what she said, you know, the uh, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, her conclusions were the exact opposite of what that meant. We are one with the Lord, and we are one with that heavenly atmosphere. Our conscious understanding might not be aware of it, but you are right now connected to that heavenly atmosphere that Jesus paid a price to give you free of charge. Glory to God. Oh, I see, yeah. So the reason why Jesus died on the cross is so that you can get inebriated in the Spirit all for free and that you wouldn't have... I see. Jesus' death on the cross was him paying the big godly bar tab. Yeah, so that there would be an open bar in heaven. Otherwise, we'd have to pay for it. Well, that night changed my life. I got a phone call from Mary Audrey a, a couple of days later, and she said, you wouldn't believe what's happening here in Toronto. The Spirit's been poured out night after night after night. Randy Clark's been here. People are like drunk in the Holy Spirit. They're laughing uncontrollably. And I thought, oh my gosh, I just had that happen to me. And I came out here and saw it. And I t- Now I'm going to pause for a second. Let's just postulate that that there is something spiritual going on, that these folks are actually experiencing something, that this is not hypnosis, that this is actual something that is prompted by a spiritual force, if you would, and that these experiences are all for real in that sense. Should we determine that it's from God then? I mean, because look, at she. what is she doing? She's authenticating her experience based upon somebody else's experience and going, oh, wow, it must be the Holy Spirit when they should have gone, whoa, 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 hold on a second here. We need to really take a look at what's going on and what we're experiencing and test our experiences against the clear, objective Word of God. Without that, uh, you know, at this point, they're deceiving themselves. And people who are having these experiences are authenticating their experiences by other people who are having these experiences rather than comparing them to the Word of God to see if this is what God the Holy Spirit really intended to do. And since this is not taught in the Bible, we must reject this. doesn't matter how many people have the experience. We must determine, based on Scripture, what it is that God the Holy Spirit is doing because God the Holy Spirit doesn't change. And the message that's going along with these experiences is the exact opposite of the message of what Scripture teaches. That's the sign that these experiences, real or not, are to be rejected, and the teachings that go along with them are to be rejected. We continue. Tell you, um, people's lives were transformed. People's lives were changed from the inside out, sometimes just by being drunk for hours. And days. I think Heidi Baker was at two weeks that she was nonstop drunk in the Holy Spirit. And then she goes back to the mission field and thousands of churches get birthed and everything accelerates and the nation gets invaded with Holy Ghost, with the power of the gospel and the power of daddy's love. Yeah, I'm not hearing the gospel here at all. It's fun to be drunk. And it's an easy way to live. Just, just recently, because I hadn't been drunk for a while, back in those days, I, I would get drunk a fair amount, you know. You just get 
in certain environments and all of a sudden you just get the download and it was like woo you know okay show me one passage where any of the apostles the the you know the the guys who were taught directly by Jesus modeled this behavior modeled this experience where they were actually drunk and by the way the passage from Acts chapter 2 yeah that doesn't say that let me show you what uh, you know the passage that somebody might be tempted to go to and uh, watch what's going on here. Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bible, it's the day of Pentecost. I'll flip over there. Acts chapter 2, I'll start at verse 1. Watch. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now dwelling there, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed, and they were astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians? Here's what they heard. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexing to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, and they said, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, and he said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your daughters and it shall prophesy, your young, men shall see, uh, your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the, of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by those hands of lawless men. Yeah, see, here's the deal. When you read the story in Acts, Peter makes a point of saying, no, we're not drunk. And then he goes on to do what would, we, what would basically be called a big buzz kill, okay? I mean, because, you know, all this euphoria, that, and none of it's happening. And he goes right to the jugular and accuses these folks of actually crucifying and murdering Jesus. That's a buzz kill. That's not something consistent with somebody who's partying in a euphoric state. And it was those who were mocking who said, ah, oh, they're just drunk. It was the mockers, and Peter makes a point of pointing out that the mockers had it wrong, right? See, Peter didn't stand up and say, no, 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 yeah, 
I know this looks like, you know, uh, that we're like totally wasted on like new wine, man. But no, 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 we haven't been having a drop to drink, dude. But what we're really experiencing here, this is the drunkenness of the Holy Spirit, man. And you can get drunk. You can have the euphoria. Why would you want new wine, man? That's like the that's like the counterfeit. We've got the real thing, dude. Yeah. Come on and get wasted in the spirit, man. You can do it because Jesus died so that the bar tab would be free. He doesn't say that at all. He makes a point of saying, no, we're not drunk. And then goes on to say, you crucified Jesus. Big buzzkill. Euphoria, not so much. In fact, at the end of Peter's preaching, you have them basic, it says of the people who were listening, and they were cut to the heart and said, brothers, what shall we do? They weren't drunk. They were stone cold sober, worried about the wrath of God that was was pointed right at them for their evil. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the promises for you and for your children. This isn't about euphoria. This is about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So there is no passage that you can really turn to for real where you can say the apostles were drunk in the spirit or modeled this or taught that this is what God wants to do or that the cross had anything to do with this. What Patricia's teaching here is flat-out idolatrous blasphemy. This is so good. Do you know that when you're drunk, you don't care what anyone thinks? When you're high in the Lord, you'll just say things with so much boldness, and if people don't like it, it doesn't matter to you. In fact, it makes it even more funny. Same with the same with the counterfeit substance. You know, when people get drunk on the world's wine or high on the world's substance, they'll say things that incriminate themselves in a really bad way and get themselves into all kinds of trouble and fights and everything. But when you're drunk with the Lord's wine, when when you're high with the most high, it's like amazing. This boldness comes upon you, and all of a sudden this connection to heaven is like with nothing in this brain to stop you because you could care less. Your brain says, you know what? You're making a, ske- a, a spectacle of yourself, but your spirit's saying, yay, you know? It, it, it's like this boldness just comes on you. It does, doesn't matter what people think anymore because you're consumed with Jesus. You're consumed with his love. You're consumed with the heavenly environment and our kingdom mandate. You're just consumed with him when you get good and drunk or high in the Holy Ghost. I remember when, you know, back in 94, 96, when it was, you know, just like every time we get together, the spirit would will come and we'd you know whole rooms full of people were drunk in the holy ghost and i wanted to do a um an experiment with our young people because they were the they were the drunkest of all our young people and in fact one of them got dragged out to a revival meeting by his parents and he got drunk in the holy ghost the holy spirit got him good he was on the floor I mean, we had to wheel him out on a chair cart at four in the morning. And he was drunk for three days nonstop. Even in the midst of the night, his parents would hear him laughing. He had been addicted to drugs 
but he had replacement therapy through what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit got him drunk on the, on the Holy Ghost wine, and he got delivered from the world's substances. Amazing. Whoa. So our young people, they were, they were, you know, they were just, they, they were. They... Where do you find examples of this in the writings of the early church fathers, the early church? Yeah, no, I, none of this. They were just over the top high in the Holy Spirit all the time. And they were having a great, a great time. And people from their schools were getting saved because they were, they just liked, they wanted to know more about the high. They say, hey, what are you on? You know, and they said, we're on Jesus. Woo, you know, and they were getting people saved that way. So I wanted to do an experiment. So I said, why don't you all come over to our house and have a, have a drinking party for a few hours and uh, just, you know, get really, you know, close to Jesus. Get, drink as much of him as you want. And, um, and then when you feel ready, go down to the streets. I just want to see what happens. Because on the day of Pentecost, they'd been up in the upper room. And when the Spirit came, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And, of course, obviously they were acting drunk or they wouldn't have been accused of being drunk. And so, whoa. And so... Did you see how she uh, misused that text? It was the mockers who accused them of being drunk, and Peter made a point of making it the point, well, no, we are not drunk. The people were hearing the mighty works of God in their own languages, and the mockers said they were drunk. Here, Patricia King is, well, they had to be acting drunk, otherwise they wouldn't have been accused of it. The text doesn't say that. And she's siding with the mockers from Acts chapter 2. On that day, when everybody was drunk, 3,000 people got added to the church. So I thought, there has to be a correlationship with this. No, the the 3,000 people were added to the church because Peter preached his big buzzkill sermon. And at the end of which, people were cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what shall we do? And he said, Repent and be baptized. The buzzkill portions of the sermon twice, Peter accused them of murdering Christ. Drunkenness in the Holy Spirit and with evangelism. I want to see. I want to see if it's the same today as it was in the Bible days. And so, I asked the kids to just get in the presence of God, worship Him, praise Him, drink. You know, and so they were they were soaking for hours and worshiping and praising, and they were getting drunker by the hour, and they were blasting each other and saying, "More, Lord!" You know, we learned that word here. More, Lord! More! I need more. Give them. Demanding of more, Lord. Give me more. Give me more, Lord. Like Jesus is your waiter, your bartender. More, you know. And so they were they they were just downloading more, and they were rolling on the floor laughing. They were just having a good time. I remember a critic at that time saying, "That's disgusting. Look at them. They're just they're just all high." And I thought, well, would you rather them be high here with Jesus or in some messed up place on drugs, you know? And I said, this is the real thing. And if- The answer is neither. The Bible doesn't teach any of this. If God is initiating, if God, if God is behind this, then it is good. It is righteous. Amen? God isn't behind this. 
at all. This isn't taught in the Bible. It's never been seen before in the apostolic era, hasn't been seen in the early church or any other time. God is not behind this. This is pure blasphemy. It is righteous. Whatever is of God is righteous. And so they were all rolling on the floor and everything. They said, hey, it's time to go. Go ye into all the world, you know. And so we sent them out the door and said, just go in the blessing of the Lord. So there they went staggering down the street. And um, they went to all kinds of different places that night with just boldness. And one of the places that they went to was the local bar. They stood outside the local tavern. And as people were coming out of the bar, they said, hey, do you want some of the real stuff? Woo! You know? And they were getting guys blasted coming out of the bars and leading them to Jesus. And then they ended up in, in the McDonald's uh, restaurant parking lot because there was, um, there was these two you know, young gangs of kids out there, and they were arguing, and they were going... Now notice this young group of, of drunk on the spirit evangelists. They weren't preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. They were preaching, hey, you want to get the real stuff so you can get really high? Big difference. This is a different gospel altogether. This is the epitome of a different gospel. Going to fight, you know. But when you're drunk, you're fearless. And so... Our kids said, hey, you guys, what's going on here? What, what are you doing? And they said, you know, and they said, get your nose out of this. Hey, man, hey, man, you don't need to fight like this. Anyways, God used them to settle the fight and get some of the kids saved. The police officers came by and saw all the kids in the middle of the night at the McDonald's parking lot, got concerned. They came in, jumped out of their cars and said, hey, what's going on here? And they said, it's okay, officer. We are um, from the church. We're from the church. And so they got acquainted with the policeman that night and um, got to know the policeman. And the policeman got drunk in the Holy Spirit too. The kid said, hey, do you want us to pray for you? And the policeman said, yeah, we could always use prayer, but he didn't know they meant right then. He he thought they meant that at church or something, they'd pray for the police officers. So the kids, drunk, all pounced on the police officers. Okay, God, give it to him, give it to him, give it to him. Come on, bless the Lord, you know, in in the way that they were accustomed to. And so the police officers, they, whoa, that is powerful. Say, yeah, it's Jesus, man, it's Jesus. And they said, well, keep up the good work, you know, because they were being used for law enforcement. This is not the Jesus who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, our great God and Savior. This is Jesus, the illicit drug. This is a false Jesus. Hey, I think we need more law enforcement in the church. Whoa. (laughs) Hey. So they stayed out till four in the morning, got a whole bunch of people saved and delivered and filled with the Holy Ghost. And they just had such a great time. They did it again the next week and the next week and the next week. And one night they decided that they were going to have their drinking party at a public park. And there was a uh, gazebo there. And so they all crowded into the gazebo and they're, they're praising Jesus, you know. And around midnight, uh, the policeman came, different policeman. And um, they said, 
Are you guys, are you guys high? They said, oh, yeah. yeah. But we, not as you suppose. They said, what do you mean? And they said, well, we're, we're just celebrating Jesus. We're high on Jesus. Yeah, you know. And uh, so the police officers, they got kind of a kick out of the kids. Thought they were cute. The kids asked the policeman if they could pray for him, and the policeman said yes. And again, thought that they meant at church or something, and the kids jumped off the gazebo and prayed for these police officers, got them blasted. The police officers went back to the home that made the complaint and said, you know, it's just kids from church. And the couple that complained said, oh, okay, that's fine. So the policeman came back to let the kids know, you know, just keep it a little bit quieter, you know. Um, the curfews, you know, I mean, you're past curfew, but, you know, if you stay a little bit quieter, I think it'll be okay. And so they just let them stay. Well, they got a reputation with the police department about these kids. If you've got a problem, just get these drunken kids to come out and they'll settle it for you. Whoa. They'd get drunk before they went to school exams. They'd get drunk while they were cramming. They just got really good at the drunk thing and became so fruitful, so fruitful in life. And we were so proud of them, the way that they walked with Jesus and celebrated Jesus. And yeah, we're so proud of them. It's not that their lives exemplified the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Instead, they exemplified the new gifts of the Spirit, drunkenness, disorderliness, lack of self-control. Oh, yeah, what godly kids those are. Fill, fill the, the city with blessing, you know. It, it was an oppressed city. And then when the Spirit came, everything changed. Everything shifted. There was joy again that entered. And joy can enter your life, too. I remember back then it was like, you know, everything was moving so hard, so fast. And, you know, when you felt a little bit of pressure coming on, you just remembered to drink. Oh, we'll just have a little bit of a drink. Oh, there, that's better. And everything got easier. Everything was, everything was good when you had a good drink of Jesus. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink, he said. And he spoke this concerning the Spirit. No, he, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Jesus claims to be the, you know, the water that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. He wasn't referring to an inebriating drink. That we can drink of the Spirit of God. We can drink of the essence of Christ. We can drink and feast on that heavenly environment, that heavenly atmosphere. And so I hadn't had a good drink for a long time. Well, and... um in this, uh, a few months back, we were just in a real, you know, life has sometimes these big pressure seasons, right? You've all had them more than once. You know, it just kind of goes in waves. But when you're in a wave of a pressure season, just remember this. Every wave crashes. <laughs> so the day will come when that pressure season will crash. And so you can look forward to that. But in the meantime, you might as well just get drunk. 
<laughs> really, that that's your great sage biblical advice, and it's not even biblical advice. This isn't from God. So we were in one of those pressure seasons, and I was like, you know, pulling my hair out and, you know, fleshing out. Don't look at me like that. You flesh out too. When you're not walking in the spirit, that's what you do. So I, you know, kind of stepped out of walking in the spirit, and I was frustrated, and I was like, oh, and I was in a situation that was out of my control. Don't you hate those kind of situations? And uh, it was out of my control, and I couldn't do anything about it, and I'm, this isn't right, this isn't right. Oh, God, what are you going to do about it, and how come you're doing nothing? And, you know, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and he said, you know what, you you just really got to get drunk. Wow. So the Holy Spirit spoke to her, and the Holy Spirit's advice was, you just really need to get drunk. Does that sound at all like God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Holy Trinity? The God who inspired the biblical text? No, not at all. The God who... According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit who would convict the world of sin and unbelief. Giving the advice, you know, what you really just need, Patricia, you really just need to get drunk. Sounds like the advice of Satan, not the advice of the Holy Spirit. I thought, get drunk at such a serious time like this? He says, just get drunk. And I'd forgotten I'd forgotten about this valuable invitation. It's a perpetual invitation we have. We can get drunk anytime we want. And, and where is this invitation written in the Bible? Where is this? Where does the Bible say we have this perpetual invitation to Holy Spirit drunkenness? Because the wine cellar's always open. Oh, that's just your l- twisted logic. There's no Bible verse that actually says that, right, Patricia? I thought, wow, get drunk. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to put all these worries over on, the, over on the shelf there. Okay, Holy Ghost, here I am. Now, I, I didn't feel drunk. I'm actually feeling pretty good right now. But I wasn't at the time. So it's going to be hard for me to model this. Because I was just rigid inside. I was worried and stressed and thinking negative thoughts, you know. I said, okay, I'm going to drink. By faith, glug, 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 and the Holy Spirit say, you haven't drank enough yet, glug, 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 woo, and all of a sudden, it just hit me, you just have to determine to come out of that flesh realm, and into the presence of God, and drink, or breathe, or ingest, whatever, you know. Come out of the flesh realm. Kind of a pseudo form of Gnosticism here. Oh, I mean, the Bible covers it all. You can eat, you can drink, you can just get him, though. You know, like just get him. He is the highest of all highs. And there is no high like the most high. There is none. Yeah, that, that, like, that sounds biblical, but it's not. There is no Bible passage anywhere that says that God is the, the there is no high like the most high. This is just playing off the name of God, who is the Most High, and blaspheming and demeaning his name. 
God will not hold this woman guiltless. This is utter, utter satanic blasphemy. Kim. And you can, when you focus on him and when you just, okay, Lord, I choose to get full of you, more of you. I need more of you. I need more. More. I'm just going to drink myself silly right now, and then you can take care of the meeting. <laughs> hey. Glug, glug, glug. Hey. Whoa. Yeah. Glug, glug, glug. And just kept going back for more, and all of a sudden, all the worries were gone. All the stress was finished all the it's testimony time it has to be god the holy spirit working this is a testimony turmoil it didn't matter anymore it was just sitting over there where it needed to sit and you know what i found is i just remembered that over the next weeks is that the problem that was so big to me took care of itself Because when you get filled with God, you bring his grace inside of you and inside of the things that concern you. And then that... And where does the Bible say any of this, Patricia? Oh, yeah, it does. This is all just her lunatic ravings. Grace covers the circumstances. Wow. Woo. When you get hurt by people, and all of you do, happens in life. Proves the imperfection of the human nature. It's a sign that we're imperfect, but he is perfect. But when you get hurt, you know how, oh, doesn't that feel bad inside? Doesn't that feel like your heart's just like mincemeat? Don't you just feel like Humpty Dumpty? And you wonder, how is this ever going to put back, get, get put back together again? This is, oh, it hurts. Well, if you drink... You'll feel no pain. So the Holy Spirit is basically taking you away from all the pain of your circumstances by inebriating you so that you can just weather it. Oh, man. Drink right deep into that place where it hurts. Well, I need more because I can still feel the pain, Lord. Glug, 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 just come and feel it. And you will be amazed. You will be amazed at how your heart gets healed with his oil and with his wine. You will be amazed at how the heart comes into wholeness and how brightness will come back onto your countenance again. Even in the midst of some of your most difficult hours, the most stressful situations. Because when you get drunk in him, when you get high in him, You are incapable of doing anything in your own flesh because it weakens all of your flesh and it releases him to... Really, where does the Bible say any of this nonsense? It doesn't. You can't show me a single passage of Scripture that teaches anything of the sort. Do what he wants to do. Nations can be changed when we just, woo, you take care of it, Daddy. Woo. Now, we could talk about this for another hour. I've got more scriptures, and I've got more points. Really, you have more scripture. We've heard a total of three out-of-context verses. Three. Yeah, show us where this is all taught in scripture, Patricia. Any of it. 
But um, why not just do it? Right? Yeah, okay. So now they're, gonna, they're just going to go for it. They're now you're going to hear them getting drunk in the spirit. Just do it. <laughs> wow. Now, how many of you have been drunk in the spirit before? Oh. Well, why don't you all come up to the front if you've been drunk before? Come on up. Just squeeze in here. And you at home... Just, you know, you can start drinking right now. Now, sometimes when we're drunk, we fall down. Whoops. But you don't usually feel any pain when you fall, so don't worry. Because there's no way we have enough catchers to do anything about this. So, Lord, just protect, protect the people here. Hey! Oh, my. So, Lord, I'm asking that you get your people good and drunk now. Open up the wine cellar of heaven and pour out whoa, the new wine upon them. So just start drinking. Just start drinking. That's it. Start drinking. Glug, 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 glug. Woo-hoo, woo-hoo. Glug, 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 glug. Glug, 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 glug. Whoa. Thank you, Lord, that you're delivering people from stress and from sickness and from worry and from weakness. It's all getting lifted off right now in Jesus' name. This is not the Holy Spirit's work. To blame this on the Holy Spirit is to blame, it's basically, is a fra- to frame him, to make him guilty of a crime he didn't commit. This is a spiritual crime that you are hearing taking place. All right, now, if there's anyone that you're really good and drunk, you're good and drunk already, I'll have the first 20 of you up on the platform quickly. If you're already drunk, first 20, only 20. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, I think we got enough now. We only have one man. Okay, okay, that's enough, that's enough. Can you imagine being a non-believer and flipping channels and happening on God TV and thinking this is what Christianity is about? Come on in here. 
if you're loaded drunk already, you're loaded drunk, come on in here. You're loaded drunk already, come on in here. We got room for more. Just come on in, you're loaded drunk already. Any more that are loaded? Now, last week when I taught on the uh, gifts of the Spirit, I pointed out the fact that the biblical text makes it clear that the gifts, there are many different gifts, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to build up the body of Christ. Is that what's going on here? The Holy Spirit does not exist or give gifts so that you can have a narcissistic, inebriating experience and get drunk in Him. That doesn't build the body of Christ up at all. And nowhere is the gift of drunkenness mentioned as a gift of the Spirit. Drunk already, come on in. Okay, everyone, they want more. They want more. Give them more. More, 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 more. And demanding of the King of kings and Lord of lords, our great God, the Holy Trinity, and screaming out to him more, 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 more like a spoiled, rotten brat child, or that God is your waiter. More! More! Woo-hoo! Whoa! More, 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 more! Whoa! All righty! <laughs> No, they're not. There's no healing angels being released right now. She is lying through her teeth. Someone is being healed of a knee injury. If you start to move your knees, you'll notice that your knees are healed. 
someone had a knee injury and your knees are healed, you can tell there's no more pain. There's no more pain on them. Your knees are healed. Who is that? Put up your hand. Is that you? Come on forward. Whoa, anyone else having your knees healed? I saw an angel come and put hands on knees. Whoa, whoa. for an MRI in two weeks. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for doing surgery on her knees today in the spirit, for your healing, for removing all the pain in Jesus' name. Whoa. Woo. How do they feel? Dancing. I'm dancing. Awesome. Hey. <laughs> Someone lost a loved one. Whoa. Within the last two years. And you have, you have not been able to get rid of that pain in your heart of that loss. But right now, that pain's being lifted off of you. Right now, it's lifted off of you. False signs, false wonders, false gospel. That's what all of this is. Who is that? Is that you? You felt a lift off of you. That sorrow, that sorrow is gone. Lord, heal her nose too. (laughs) Whoa, I bless you. All right. Holy Spirit, you are awesome. Jesus, we thank you that you have allowed us to drink of you. You have allowed us to feast of you and of your, the glory of your kingdom, of the glory. Of- so this is like the New Apostolic Movement's version of communion. This is a blasphemous communion that you're hearing. This is feasting on the Lord. Drinking in Jesus in the Spirit. This is a satanic mockery of the Lord's Supper. Of your righteousness. And then in the midst of our hunger, you have filled us. You have filled us. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. We praise you and we thank you. And now, I want you to receive boldness from the Holy Spirit. Bold love. Drink of bold love. Bold love. And then, as you drink of bold love, we're going to release you into an assignment of go ye over this dinner hour. Go ye and share this love around. Share the beauty of his love with those around you. Go out into the marketplace, into the restaurants and share love. Be drunk with his love. Drunk with his love. Drunk with the boldness of his love. And so, Father, I release an anointing and empowerment right now. 
for your children to go and share what they're full of. That they would go and share your love with all boldness with those who don't know you. And let miracles flow through them. Yeah, they're full of something, but it ain't the Holy Spirit. Let miracles, signs, and wonders follow them as they go. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that, say a big amen. So there you have it, Patricia King's God TV uh, broadcast from the I Need More, More, Lord, More conference. That's apparently what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's not what the Spirit has taught us at all. How do I know, and how can I speak so arrogantly and so confidently that that's not the Holy Spirit? Because I know what God, the Holy Spirit, has inspired to be written in His Word. And the word mentions none of this nonsense. In fact, it teaches something completely different. This is a false spirit. This is a deceiving spirit. That is a satanic spirit, a false gospel. And those who are caught up in this, we Christians have an obligation to reach out to them and to plead with them from God's word that what they're believing is a lie. And to point them to the real Jesus, the one who died and bled on the cross for their sins. Even the sin of this blasphemous behavior and this blasphemous doctrine and theology. And call them to repent and be forgiven. So that they can experience the true fruits of the Holy Spirit. Which have nothing to do with drunkenness and inebriation. But rather, totally about being sober-minded. Sober-minded with the awe of God, sober-minded in the contrition and sorrow and repentance for sins, sober-minded that we were bought with a price by the shed blood of Christ. This, which you just heard, is really what Patricia King is all about. She is a priestess, all right. She's a teacher, and she's like her sister, her older sister, Jezebel. You want to read about Jezebel? Look her up in the book of 1 Kings. That's what Patricia King truly is. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. Please help us do what we do by supporting us financially. You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. What that does is, is that the more people that sign up to it, you know, to join our crew, it makes it so that we can better budget for our monthly expenses by not having peaks and valleys in our giving. It's it's a way to ensure kind of a steady amount of income coming in. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to contact me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. 
Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.